Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. Some years ago, a parent wrote in to Reader's Digest describing an incident that happened as they were preparing for Christmas. As we were putting out cookies for Santa on Christmas Eve, said the letter, I accidentally dropped one. No problem, I said, picking it up and dusting it off before, before placing it back on the plate. You can't do that, argued my four-year-old. Don't worry, I said. Santa will never know. He shot me a look. So he knows if I've been bad or good, but he doesn't know the cookie fell on the floor. (laughs) Just couldn't believe that one. And there are some things that are hard to believe. That's true. That was the very problem Zachariah was facing. He just couldn't believe it. Couldn't understand it, didn't make sense to him, and so he couldn't believe it. It was his merry moment. Last week, we started our Advent series, a series entitled Merry Moments, God's Unexpected Calls. And you'll remember that the writer Bud Wren coined that little term, merry moments, to describe those moments when God breaks in in such an important dramatic way that we realize if we respond to this, our lives will be unalterably changed. Merry moments. In fact, Wren, writing to pastors and church leaders, writes this about such moments. He says, have you ever had a merry moment in ministry? It's that moment when God gives you a message or a call that is so unbelievable, so unrealistic, You either have to just laugh or just give up and follow or sometimes both. Merry moments. They're all over the place the first Christmas season. And Zechariah was one of those who experienced such. But the truth is, it didn't only happen then, even though that's where we begin. We begin today by reading Luke chapter 1. We're going to read the incident that happened to Zechariah. We're going to read his merry moment. Luke chapter 1, I begin reading with verse 5. In the time of Herod the king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both well advanced in years. Once, when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all of the assembled worshipers were praying outside. 
Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zacharias saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you. And many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. Many of the people of Israel he will bring back to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, How can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to you to speak to you and tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. He just couldn't believe it. Didn't make sense to him. Couldn't understand how that could possibly be the case. A merry moment. Now, the truth is, this was the pinnacle of Zechariah's life, certainly of his professional life. At this point in time in the nation of Israel, we believe there were somewhere between 18 and 20,000 priests. The priests rotated twice a year. They got to do something at the temple, participate in the worship services and the worship leadership in some fashion. But only on very rare occasions was a priest tapped on the shoulder to go into the holy place of the temple and burn incense. The way it happened is that lots were cast, a priest was chosen, and that was the one who would go in before God to represent the people, to burn the incense that was understood to mix with the prayers of the saints. The vast majority of priests never experienced that honor in their entire lives. But here, Zechariah has been tapped on the shoulder. It's you. It's your opportunity. You can almost picture as the people gather, there are his family on the front row. They want to witness this once-in-a-lifetime occasion. It's a moment of high drama. Zechariah enters the holy precincts, approaches the altar of incense, ready to participate. And it's right then that, bam, an angel standing at the right side of the altar. You can understand, certainly, why Zachariah staggers backwards incredulous. What does this mean? Well, I'll tell you this. 
despite the fact that he's not able to come to terms yet with what all this means, despite the fact that how God is working in his life doesn't fully make sense, despite the fact that he can't yet believe. The truth is very simple. This is a merry moment if I've ever seen one. Merry moments appear all through that first Christmas account. And this is one of them. But those merry moments didn't appear just in the first Christmas account. They continue to appear in various and sundry ways. Those evidences of God's work in our lives that cause us to draw back in awe at what he's doing. Our lives forever changed. So we're listening. We're listening not only to the merry moments of Scripture, but we're listening to the merry moments here in our community. Each week of these four Sabbaths of Advent, we're going to talk to someone from our community, try to understand a bit about God's work, about the merry moments in their lives. This week, it's truly my privilege to invite my colleague and friend, Pastor Tyler Stewart, who is the young adult pastor here on our staff here at Loma Linda University Church to come up and join me. Tyler, delighted to have you here. Welcome. Tyler, as I think about this story and as I think about your story, I'm struck by the way that God works. But the, before we get to that, just a bit of the context. You were not raised in a home that was religious in any particular way. Is that correct? Oh, I, I converted and became a Christian when I was 19. Wow, yeah. 19 years yeah. old, okay. Can you tell us just a little bit about your background? Sure. So I was actually born in, in Korea, and uh, at the age of four months, I was adopted. So flew halfway mm. around the world, came, uh, grew up in the great Northwest, Portland, Oregon. That's where I was raised, um, beautiful couple, a beautiful family, really, that gave me uh, the very best by way of love and support uh, throughout my childhood and, and my adolescence. So. Wow. Now, just recently, you took a very important trip. In fact, when you shared about it with us in our staff meeting, uh, your colleagues, we all gathered around you and prayed for you, laid hands on you and prayed for you in a special way that God's grace and his presence would go with you. I want you to share with us about that journey, and I'm not going to say too much, just here and there, because I, I'd like you to share about what happened, what the purpose was, and how it unfolded. Sure. So I've, I've always kind of held in my heart that uh, I would take a trip back to Korea at some point in life. Hadn't happened to date, but uh, as many of you know now, I'm, I'm married, I have two young children, it's a five-year-old and a three-year-old. So Vonette and I had thought that maybe when the kids were kind of age, of age, a little bit older, where they'd have more memories, we would all go uh, to a family, as a family to Korea. But it just so happened that uh, a few months ago, one of my mentors had said that he was taking a group on a learning adventure to Korea. So this wasn't visiting a school or building a home. Uh, this was just... Um, entrenching themselves into a culture, into a place, trying the food, meeting the people. And so they were going to go to Seoul. And he said, you know, you should come along with the group. And so I actually ended up talking to the travel agent that they were working with. They quoted me at $1,200. That was just for the ticket. So I knew right away that I wasn't going to go to Korea in 2017, <laughs> you know. 
Um, but, you know, I would check from time to time, and I actually did see the price of a ticket go down to, to $800, which was, was much more reasonable, but not in the budget uh, for this year. So I didn't think much of it, but then I got a phone call out of the blue from a friend, an acquaintance of one of my mentors, uh, of this mentor, and uh, she called me and said, hey, I actually just heard your story about adoption. I just wanted to let you know that... Um, Kind of in a former life, I used to help uh, adoptees reconnect with their birth families. So if you're interested, I'd love to try to help you reconnect with, with your family. So I, I was really kind of struck by that. I, I, you know, I wasn't expecting that. I got that phone call and kind of thinking about that. And then uh, the very next day, I ended up looking and Lo and behold, there was a ticket on Singapore Airlines, and I don't know mm. if anyone has ever flown Singapore Airlines, but it's consistently rated like the number one airline in all of the world. Mm. They give you hot towels throughout the flight, and after your food, you get Haagen-Dazs for dessert. Amen. Yeah, that's right. Beautiful. So good ice cream is the quickest <laughs> way to my heart, and so I, was, I was, was ready to go when I you know, saw Singapore Airlines, but it was a straight flight of LAX directly to Seoul, for six hundred and forty-nine dollars. Wow. wow! So I told my wife immediately, and uh, she said, "Babe, I think you need to just go ahead and buy it." And so, in the back of my head, I thought, "I got twenty-four hours to cancel. Let me just purchase it, and <laughs> if I need to undo it, I will." But of course, twenty-four hours passed, and all of a sudden, here I was heading on a trip back to to, to my homeland, really uh, unexpectedly. But some of the tensions between North Korea and, of course, the world and, and all, the, all the rest, all that was going on there in the last few months specifically, there was enough tension rising that they actually canceled this learning adventure. Mm. Uh, and the only problem was it had been longer than 24 hours. So I couldn't, <laughs> uh, you know, I was still going to Korea. So I was trying to figure out what to do. And I ended up talking to my mentor and he said, look, you know what? Uh, his wife and himself had also purchased tickets. They said, look, we're still going to go. We just didn't want to take a group, some of the safety measures and stuff, but we're still going to go. If you want to come along with us, you can do that. And really, one of the first moments, I mean, all of this feels providential, but one of the moments that really struck me was when he said, you know, our agenda probably would have been full if you'd come with the group, places mm -hmm. to go, people to see, visit. Now we have a wide open agenda. So if anything materializes with that search for your family or whatever, we'll have time and we've got some people on the ground and we'll help you in your wow. search. Wow. So, Continue. What yeah. happens? So you get to Seoul. And that, that's right. So I had been talking to the adoption agency back and forth during my time. I had limited information. Matter of fact, my parents in high school had given me a small packet of information about my birth story. I uh, don't know who my birth father is, only my, my birth mother. But under the circumstances, uh, the paperwork suggests that she wasn't even actually able to articulate her name. They actually list her as having a very low uh, IQ and that they had to give her this name because she couldn't tell them mm -hmm. her name. So I've lived with that for a lot of years. That was really hard the first time I saw my paperwork, the limited information, didn't really understand what all of that meant. So I really never felt like I had much of a, sh a chance to find my birth mother, actually, because of that information. But back and forth with the adoption agency, they said, look, we work with a government-affiliated organization. We'll, uh, we'll see what we can do. And the very last message I got from them right before I was headed out to Korea, they said, we're not able to find an address, but if you're going to be in Korea, why don't you just come by the office mm -hmm. anyways? Mm -hmm. 
So we flew out, wow. spent the first few days there. It was amazing. I ate a lot of incredible food, uh, <laughs> you know, morning, uh, noon, and evening. And um, <laughs> you know, seeing the people, seeing the places, it was, you know, as you can imagine, almost three and a half decades since, since I was there. So going back for the first time uh, was, was a really amazing experience. Monday morning, I had the appointment at 9 a.m. I, I went into the adoption agency. I was accompanied by a woman named Bernice. She was a seminary professor and pastor who was acting kind of as our guide in Korea. And um, I got taken in the room by myself, though, and connected with the woman that I had been emailing back and forth with. And uh, within the first three minutes of us sitting down, she let me know that my uh, birth mother had actually passed away in 2006. Oh, wow. That must have been a really Uh, tough moment. Yeah, I I, I was blindsided by... uh, you know what they said? It, it was really confusing, actually, because in our email exchange, she was telling me, we can't find the address. Mm. But then now she was telling me she had passed away. And I had come to the adoption agency just figuring, okay, well, give me the information that you have, and I'll continue my search. So I was blindsided by that. Didn't really hear much that she was saying after that. Mm. Um, so that was hard. I had come to Korea thinking that I was kind of on this quest and search for right. her. Uh, and it had abruptly ended before it really ever began. So I, I definitely grieved the loss of my, of my Korean mother uh, that day. So in the midst of, of the deep disappointment that that happened at that point in time, what, yeah. did, what did you then decide to do next? So uh, one of the other pieces of information that I had held on to was that my mother was put into an institution for the mentally ill. And um, the reason they had found out she had passed away is because they had made contact with the institution and found out that she had come back in 1991 and 2006 when she passed away. So I wanted them to bridge a connection between the institution and myself so that I could go see whatever information they might have. I I could pursue that. But the woman at the adoption agency wasn't too keen on that. She said, hey, look, Korea's really cracked down on personal information and the giving out of personal information, even though you're you know, this kind of long lost son and you've got these connections, it's going to be really hard for you to obtain anything. Mm. So I really pleaded for her to make the connection for me. She wasn't willing to do that for whatever reason, but she did give me the phone number and address. So I just resolved to, to, to take the trip out there myself. And Bernice, this guide, pastor, seminary pa- uh, professor, wasn't going to be available the next day, but she said she'd intentionally pray about who to send with me. She decided to ask and send with me a young girl by the name of Jean, 25 years old. She was studying the arts in New York and had come home for a, uh, for a semester to mm-hmm. Seoul. And she's the one that ended up accompanying me the following day to go to the institution. And she would be your interpreter, translator, exactly. guide? Exactly. So she, she spoke both Korean and English well, and so she kind of uh, came along with me for, for the, the, the journey. Excellent. Yeah. So you traveled. How far was it? I did. Uh, you know, the one piece, um, so that was Monday. I spent Monday uh, really grieving that. Monday night, I ended up meeting up with a couple. One of them, he was actually a journalist from Bloomberg. And um, he really started to give me hope, kind of in the midst of my despair, because you know, he said, hey, listen, Korea's really cracked down on the personal information. You're not going to probably get much in, by way of paperwork or anything from them. But he started, kind of with a journalist mind, he started walking through scenarios and things I could do. He said, you know, but if they won't give you paperwork, ask him what vicinity she's from, neighborhood, area, and mm-hmm. then go talk to the taxi cab drivers 
Oftentimes, mm. taxi cab drivers pride themselves on knowing the city, knowing the stories, knowing the people. Wow. And then he actually picked, plucked out of my paperwork. I didn't even recognize it, but he found that um, there was the name of a police officer in my documentation and a, and a police off branch. He said, why don't you go to that police branch? Find out if that officer's still there. Ask, ask him if he recalls the situation when they had found your, your mother. She was homeless on the streets, and they had brought her to the institute. Um, and so I was like, yeah, okay. So he started giving me some touch points to go and, and visit for my day of searching. But he also said, you know, although you probably won't get anything, the one thing you do have going for you is that Koreans are meticulous about their record keeping. Mm. So if they'll just give you anything, tell you anything. So we had kind of plotted that out. So the next day, we took a, a bullet train, 200 miles an hour, two <laughs> hours south of Seoul to a city called Daegu. That's where I was born. Gene and I got off the train. We took about a half-hour taxi cab ride. It's the first time I really felt my heart swell with pride for a city because it's where I was born. It's where I was raised. Wow. Um, or, 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 sorry, it was, it was my birthplace. Um, but we arrived at the Institute. There was a kind of a guard station at the front of the institute, and Jean went in and spoke to the man. I was taking some pictures. She came back out, and she said that the man had said, go to this building to the second floor. So we started walking the grounds, and quickly I could recognize kind of with the characters of people that were there that, you know, they had serious, uh, were dealing with serious issues. We got to the steps of the building where we were supposed to go inside, second floor, but we stopped right outside of there because, uh, you know, I realized at that moment that these are probably steps where my mother would have walked. Mm. So we paused there and we, we said a prayer and all along with this experience, even though I felt like I had lost my mom the day before, I was pretty convicted that God was going to lead us to places and people and that it was going to be a deeply meaningful and spiritual experience. And so we prayed in that moment and we walked through the doors. Immediately on your right-hand side, when you walk in the building, there were these two double doors. It looked like a front office. But Jean started to walk up the first flight of stairs because in Korean and with the conversation with the guard, he had told her to go to the second floor. Well, I didn't know that. So I'm following behind her halfway up the first flight of steps, and I'm looking behind me back at those double doors because I'm thinking to myself, we should probably head to the front office, you know. But before I could finish the thought, there was a young woman that actually curled around down the second story of steps and met Jean face to face and they began to interchange in Korean and I looked back and I saw the two of them talking and I just had this moment of realization, you know, I think, you know, what if we we're supposed to meet this, this young woman? So sure enough, she's the one that actually led us right back down those steps and we went through the double doors into the front office, but she sat us off in a side room, probably a little small eight by eight office, left the door half cracked, the window blinds were half drawn up. She went back to her desk and then walked to the front desk and started talking to a woman. And we were sitting in a room right where we had a f just kind of a, a beeline view to see this discussion that was happening between this young woman that we had met halfway up the flight of steps and the front desk lady. They're speaking in Korean for quite a while, and I asked Jean, what were they saying? And she ended up telling me, the young woman who we had met was saying, you know, here's a guy, he's just looking for his mom. She passed away 11 years ago in 2006. They're trying to obtain inf information that they mm -hmm. can. The woman at the front desk is saying, no, nothing we can do for them. And so she says, oh, I mean, we can, we can find something. You know, there's got to be some records that we can locate. And she says, no, it's, it's been too long. That won't be in our computer system. And so then the young woman says, well, look, if we, can, if we can even go downstairs if we want, try to get the physical file and look. No, she, the woman at the front desk wasn't having it. So eventually she walked, the young woman walked away a bit back to her desk. 
And I really look at that moment and, and, and recognize that had we just stepped into that building and walked through the double doors ourselves, our first point of contact would have been that woman at the front desk. And I'm almost positive that within 45 seconds, we would have probably been churning mm. back around and headed off to the police station or somewhere to the municipal hospital where I was born or somewhere to try to gain information. But because God had brought us in contact with this young woman, she really became an advocate for my mm. life and for my family. And for whatever reason, she wouldn't relent. She felt convicted that, that my mother's story was there and that she could find it. Wow. So... Um, she went back to her desk. About five minutes later, she walked by the room. She said something brief in Korean. It felt cryptic to me and walked away. I asked Jean, what did she say? And referring to my mother's paperwork and documents, she said, I think she's here, but I'm not sure. She had scurried off and walked away. Five minutes later, again, she comes back and she says, look, we all take lunch at 1230. We had come at 12. Can you come back in a couple hours? Mm-hmm. And she said, no, look, he's, he's from America. He's leaving back home in a few days. This is our one shot to, to look for information. So she said, mm-hmm. okay, hold on. Went away for another five, ten minutes, and then I'll never forget, she came back into the room with a manila folder in her hand. She put the manila folder down on our table, turned around, walked out, and closed the door. Mm-hmm. Um, again, as you recall, this went against everything that we had been told all along the way, that there was nothing we were going to be able to receive. I opened up the manila folder at the very top, uh, was paperwork and a picture of my mother, the very first picture of my birth wow. mother that I've ever seen. Wow. And underneath was 38 pages of documents uh, outlining her life since the age of three. Wow. Remember, wow. Koreans are meticulous with their mm. um, reporting. And so uh, it, it was, it's been probably the most bittersweet experience of my life because on Monday I felt like I had lost, lost her. On Tuesday, in many ways, I felt like I had found her. I had her in complete life sketch in front of me. Um, and then it was also bittersweet because even though I had found her, her story was an, ex- was an incredibly sad one. So since wow. the age of three, she had experienced a physical, emotional, and sexual abuse from family members. Um, and that became a reoccurring pattern in her life by different men mm. um, all the way through. But it was bittersweet as well because here I had these documents all my life since high school with a certain narrative of who she was. I ended up finding out they hadn't given her that name. That was her, that was her actual name. Mm. Um, and then her inability to articulate her name and say different things, you know, they had labeled as low IQ. But in reality, when you saw the abuse that she had endured over her life, likely, you know, me being conceived and her having to carry me uh, while pregnant and homeless, you know, was probably extremely traumatic for her. Mm-hmm. And I think that they met her at a point of trauma where she, she just really couldn't relay a, mm-hmm. a whole lot. I mean, there obviously are still questions. But it, for, it felt redemptive in a way to hold a story all these years of my life on who she was, but then to peel back some of the layers and see who she, who she actually was and what she had actually endured and been through. So, Tyler, that's just amazing. When I think of, of the way God's hand has been on your life and the dramatically different life you've lived or could have lived, it's quite stunning. It's quite breathtaking to consider. Where are you with things now? Yeah. So, at, you know, the last piece was I wanted to know where she was buried. And they ended up telling me that she had been cremated. That's what they do. And uh, they keep the remains for 10 years. And my mother had passed away 11 years ago. Hmm. 
So, uh, but we asked to see documentation from 2006 just to verify um, everything. And uh, my mother had passed away in December 14 of 2006. So they went to the paperwork and looked and found that on December 15th, the day after that she uh, was cremated, uh, my aunt had come and picked up the remains. Mm. So she had two sisters and a brother. And right next to my aunt's name, there was a phone number and an address. Wow. So I left, I, left, I left that institute with that information, and I had to make um, some decisions on what we wanted to do next. And on the way back from the taxi to the bullet train, I processed that. I figured, okay, here we go. I'm going to go to the doorstep of an unknown family member now and see if I can get any more of the story. But then I started having second thoughts in my head. You know, is this responsible of me to take this young 25, you know, Jean, take her with me to a place I don't know, to people I don't know? What if these people in some way wanted to take advantage of the situation? Just all these question marks. I really wasn't sure, you know, never been down this road before. But so we decided the best thing was to do was to reconvene that evening with my mentor, his wife, and spend some time processing all that had happened and where we wanted to take it. Mm-hmm. So what we decided to do, I ended up sending a text message to my, this unknown aunt of mine because we thought maybe uh, a phone call would be too drastic just to get a phone call like that. So we sent a message off to them and hoped that she'd respond. And, and uh, she, you know, 10 minutes became 20, 20 became an hour, hour became two hours. She didn't respond, but we kind of worked it through and figured, you know what, she's probably not going to make a decision by herself. She's probably going to talk to other family members, mm-hmm. the uncle, the aunt, here's what's happened, what should we do? But nothing happened that following day. It was actually the last day before I was headed back uh, here to the States. And so that evening they said, look, do you just want to make a phone call direct? So we did. Someone picked up on the other end of the line. It was a short conversation back and forth in Korean. I asked them what happened. And uh, the other person on the other end of the line said, wrong number. Mm. So, uh, but, the search hasn't, but the search hasn't ended. There are people there that are still advocating for me. We have my, my mother's social security number, and it looks like I, have a, I was registered as well when I was born. So now we're just figuring out legally the best way to obtain, again, because personal information is so protected, though, in that country. They're figuring out what are the, what's the right way mm-hmm. to maybe get a current address, current phone number from, uh, from my extended family. So if that's the last chapter... Um, you know, my heart is full, having found my, my birth mother, uh, but my sense is that maybe God has some more to the story still to be told. So, Wow. Yeah. So as you think about all this that has transpired, certainly uh, your parents that adopted you here in this country and gave you this life and what happened on this search, and as you think about that in the context of God and His grace, because I know this has been an experience where you've had a lot of prayer what sense are you making of all of that? How does God play into this? Yeah, well, it, feels, it feels pretty clear this morning in the midst of the series that we're in and spending time in Luke chapter 1. Um, you know, there's a verse there, verse 66, where it speaks of, of John the Baptist, and it says that the hand of the Lord was with him, mm. the hand of God's favor. Um, and, I, and I guess I've reflected this week as we've kind of been preparing for this mm. moment. On the way, uh, I've sensed the favor of God on my life. Going back home, seeing the story and the reality of my mother, what life may have been uh, had mm-hmm. I been raised there, where I would have end ended up, whether it be an orphanage or something else there, versus the life I've been fortunate and privileged to hear, live here mm-hmm. with, with my family and, and in this country. Um, I see the hand in favor of God. But you know something that struck me 
Pastor Randy, as you were sharing this morning now, kind of setting the stage in context for mm-hmm. Zechariah and Elizabeth's story, is the favor that was residing in Zechariah's life, mm-hmm. you know, the lots mm-hmm. and opportunity that he had to serve in the temple at that time. Absolutely. To exchange an experience with the angel Gabriel. Um, and I've been reflective this morning about, I wonder, if, I wonder if my mom felt like she was favored. Wow. And... Uh, I think. Take your time, Tyler. I'm struggling a bit myself. I think she endured a lot. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. I would have loved to see her. Absolutely. Show her that she was favored, too. I can't tell you how much, Tyler, I appreciate your willingness to come and share with our community of faith, with our family, our friends, something that's deep and real and personal, something that's still unfolding. And just as I sit and think about the whole story, it just is amazing to me how the hand of God continues to appear and to work. I choose to believe, I choose to believe that somewhere and in some way, Uh, Maybe God gave some sense of assurance, some sense of favor on the life of a very special woman who gave you life, and that my hope and prayer and trust is that one day in the kingdom you will be able to extend not only God's favor to her, but your favor as well. Thank you so much, Tyler. Really appreciate it. I want you to think about what Tyler just said, that he sensed the hand of God's favor, the hand of God's grace resting upon him and guiding his life. And then I want you to think of Zachariah. Zachariah standing there before the angel. Zachariah actually is terrified, not sure what to make of this, not sure how to make sense of it, not sure how to understand it, what does this mean trying to take in this merry moment. But the thing that strikes me about that moment is this. Even before the angel spoke a word, even while Zechariah was still taking in the scene before him, he could have known that God's favor was with him. Could have known that. You notice that our text says something interesting. Luke took pains, took the time to write of that scene that the angel appeared on the right side of the altar. The right side of the altar. The right side was the side of favor, of grace, of blessing. Very symbolic in Scripture. Zechariah was a bit overwhelmed, and he apparently missed that. But had he caught it, he could have known before the angel ever opened his mouth that God was looking on him with favor. I don't know what your merry moment is or will be, what it will be like this Christmas and how it may unfold in your life and experience, whether it will have resemblance to Tyler's journey, to Zachariah's experience, to Mary's from last week, 
or to one of the other ones. Typically in merry moments, God asks something of us. He asks us to follow. He asks us to obey. He asks us to trust. But Zechariah adds a dimension to that. He says merry moments do not only ask us to respond, but they also offer us something. They offer us the assurance of God's grace and God's favor. That's what Christmas is all about. That's the reason God sent his son. That's the reason the angel appeared to foretell the birth of John. All of that was about communicating, not just to Zechariah, but to each one of us, that God wants to extend his favor, his grace, and his blessing to us. This Christmas, as you experience your merry moments, that is something you can believe. Gracious God, I want to thank you for a priest in the ancient world who went through a stunning experience for Luke's record of that experience for us to learn from. I want to thank you for Tyler, for his birth mom, for his adoptive family, for the way that you have had your hand upon him. And Lord, I want to thank you for my friends in this congregation that a deep sense of your favor might rest upon us this Christmas season and that the merry moments might be transformative in our lives. All these things we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you have had your heart stirred today, if you're aware of a merry moment in your life, if you want to process something, pray with someone, have someone pray for you. Our prayer ministry volunteers are available and would love to pray with you. Just to your left, outside that door, across the courtyard is the prayer place. They would love to meet you there immediately following the postlude of the service today and pray with you. And may God bless you in rich ways.